Hi, I'm Luke. And I'm Brennan. We, we are, are the Farm, farm finders. finders. When we first got married, we dreamed of owning land and building a self-sufficient lifestyle. But we soon saw that buying land was almost out of reach. Land was expensive and hard to finance, but we couldn't just give up on our dream of being landowners. To be honest, it was a pretty discouraging problem, but we were determined to find a solution. So we started a company called The Farm Finders to find properties that anyone could afford. That was a few years back, and today we're proud to say we've helped hundreds of people make their landowning dreams a reality. There's something inside each of us that wants a piece of land to call our own. Here at The Farm Finders, we can make that happen. If you're like us and dream of owning land, then check out our website at thefarmfinders.com to find that perfect property. Take advantage of our no credit check, zero interest owner financing with payments as low as $50 a month with our secure online checkout. It's easy to make any property yours with just a few clicks. So don't just dream, do something. Visit thefarmfinders.com today. Let's Let's make make you a landowner. Now you can hear us around the world streaming 24-7 at safetyfm.com. Streaming live from Taos, New Mexico. Here is Dr. J. Allen on Safety FM. Broadcasting live from the Safety FM studios in Orlando, Florida. Here is your host, Dr. J. Allen on Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast is brought to you by Safety Focus Moment. They're consultants that want to help you get the safety culture you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com. Hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. Hopefully everything is going fine for you this week. For a very long period of time, I have asked myself the question, where did human performance, human and organizational performance, or safety differently all come from? I knew that I was in love with this versionality of safety, but I really didn't understand everything about it. I didn't understand who all was involved. Are we following the process that the founding fathers had in mind when they created human and organizational performance. If it was coming from the Department of Energy, my assumption was always that it needed to be free. And I felt that we got to the point as an industry where we were not giving this information out for free anymore. I felt that there was a lot of consultants, instructors going out there and charging people for giving this information out there. So I wanted to know from the founding fathers if we were doing it correctly. I wanted to know from the founding fathers if it was still taking the same trajectory that they wanted when they originally put this together. As I did research, there was names that kept on coming up. And I was wondering if I reached out to these people directly would they be interested in telling me how it all occurred? And fortunately for us, they all have agreed to come on. So we're going to go down this journey on how human and organizational performance all started. I have sat here and contemplated how we're going to do this. I don't know if this is going to be a mixture of several different interviews together into one. If this is going to be just one interview after another on how the Department of Energy 
and Inpo put this thing together? I don't know. And the funny part is that we record these intros before we start actually editing the audio clips together when we do a produced version of the podcast. So let's go down this journey together. We're going to have some people come on that we've heard of, but have not been in an interview standpoint on how it all started. So I hope that by the end of this interview mini series with all these individuals, you're able to make a determination if we're doing the correct thing. Enjoy this mini-series on Safety FM. It begins in Orlando, Florida and travels steadily to the West, beaming across North America and planet Earth and into your head. The world of safety never stops. And now, the Safety FM podcast and broadcast with Dr. Jay Allen. Shane Bush. How did you get involved with the whole Department of Energy? Yeah, and that that might be the best place to to start. So actually, uh, what happened was I had been working uh, for a contractor for Department of Energy at the Idaho National Lab for some time. And in 2001, we had just achieved what's called star status with a uh, safety program called the Voluntary Protection Program. And that's a big deal, but it requires continuous improvement. So my management challenged me immediately to go out and find what's the next big move in safety, what's the latest and greatest. And so there was three of us that were given the assignment and we went out and benchmarked the traditional names like DuPont and others. Um, But one organization that we really felt, and by the way, I need to qualify that a little bit. They were particularly interested in human error or the fact that uh, people were making mistakes at work and we were repeating these errors and mistakes. And so while they certainly wanted it to be um, safety overall, they, kind of narrowed it to maybe there's something out there to deal with all these errors we're experiencing. So as we benchmarked, we came upon an an organization called INPO, I-N-P-O, which is the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations. And they're a nonprofit organization primarily funded by commercial nuclear power plants. But uh, we ended up attending one of their courses on how to manage human error. And if anybody's tracked commercial nuclear power plants, they've got an incredible run record as far as events versus output and and they've done nothing but continually improved in their output and the cost of the kilowatt hour coming out of them has continually dropped safety's always gotten better so it was very intriguing so that's where we started and we took their materials which uh, were all copyrighted at the time and talked doe into uh, a contract with info that would allow us to take it and teach it at all of our doe sites and so we did so we lucked out because they'd already formatted and done the studies on human error and human fallibility. And um, that's when I met Earl Carnes. And Earl Carnes was the DOE headquarters uh, representative of improvement processes. So in 2001, 2002, uh, early 2002, I happened upon Earl. And uh, at first it was just an introductory thing uh, at a meeting conference. Um, but as we had more and more success with this at the Idaho National Lab, it started getting the attention of other labs. If, if people are not familiar, uh, Dewey has numerous labs across the country from New York to California, all over. And so he called and asked if I would come back to D.C. and meet with him and did. And we kind of presented what we'd accomplished or what we'd 
attempted to do here in Idaho, and they wanted it repeated. So that's where Earl and I, and uh, and actually Todd, Todd was a, a real early um, start in this as well. I, I remember introducing Todd to this in 2002 or three, and he immediately uh, came aboard. And so him and I and, and Earl ran around the DOE complexes just presenting this philosophy, because human performance is really a philosophy. Now, it has a methodology to it, but and honestly, that's how it started. So we started running around, and Todd and I probably in it, the funnest two years I can remember in facilitating courses was with Todd. That guy is incredible to facilitate with. But anyway, we ran around and um, got a lot of people on board and had some success with it. And then I started getting requests outside of DOE, which is a kind of a conflict of interest for me to uh, do in some cases because some of the customers were doing work for DOE, but in other cases not. So in about 2005, I decided to go on my own and uh, actually um, went on a three-year sabbatical from the DOE world and started my little consulting business. My wife and I did, by the way. And uh, and then it really took off because it was about that time frame. Um, I was primarily doing, because it was copyrighted material, people that were related to DOE or who could... Uh, used it like commercial nuclear power plants. Uh, but then all of a sudden DOE decided to put out a human performance manual and uh, which makes it all, uh, as far as the public makes it all, uh, available to anybody because it's, uh, now considered, uh, general information. Uh, I can't remember the term for that right now, but there you go. Public domain. And so then my world really opened up. In fact, I can remember getting a copy of the DOE manual in June, from Earl Carnes with a little sticky note on it saying Merry Christmas. And I knew exactly what he meant because all of a sudden then I could go to the Chevrons and the BP Oils and Schwann Foods and Disney World and and we could just start presenting this to anybody and everybody because it was public domain. And that's probably um, the, the neatest thing about this. And Todd's the same way. Um, but a lot of us, uh, we, we give everything away that we've developed because honestly, we just took what was already there and have created additional materials or given it our own spin. Or So the human performance world is, is pretty open with their materials. Now, there's some good products out there that you can buy. Um, and if you're in the need of it, I certainly would encourage it. But the good news is you can get most of the introductory material just off the web. And so... Um, anybody can get into this uh, with nothing more than downloading DOE's manuals. But it really took off. Um, it was amazing. Todd and I, we've done work quite a bit together with Chevron. And in fact, we were hanging out in Bangkok last year, um, and him and uh, my wife and I, and uh, getting ready to go to Singapore to do a job. And we were just talking about, man, this has been such an amazing ride. Who would have thought these, as in Todd's words, country pumpkins uh, or bunkins would end up out uh, running around to obviously Singapore and Germany and Italy and all these different places. And Todd even does a lot more foreign work than I do. But uh, so that was the beginning. Yeah. Earl Carnes. I guess really where we should probably start is how did the path start for you? Uh, it's like this. I, I, I want to put the, a couple of seeds down that will give you a clue about the path. And I've mentioned to this, uh, this to you a little bit before, Jake. And that is the idea that life is lived forward, but understood only by looking backward. And you're probably familiar with that with Soren Kierkegaard. And the idea of indirect communication, that in the sciences, 
and technology, we're very accustomed to direct communication, the formal logic, uh, the communication of facts. The, you know, Kierkegaard and others, of course, said that you know, with the idea of indirect communication, is that you can never, you know, objectify what it is to be human. And as my friend, uh, I don't know if you know Peter Hancock down at the uh, University of uh, Central Florida, but it's, it's just an incredible uh, person in uh, engineering, human factors and all. And so we were together in Atlanta several years ago and laughing about the kind of stuff that we do. And he said, well, okay, like this, Earl. He said, they're the hard sciences. We all know the hard sciences. You're a chemist, I'm an engineer. And then they're the difficult scientists. The difficult sciences deal with people, and that's the really, really difficult stuff. So that's a context there. Uh, so thinking about those two kinds of things very early on, so I started off getting a degree in chemistry because it was kind of interesting. But in the meantime, I was doing uh, studies in communication. Uh, and as you know, one of the social sciences, looking at psychology, uh, philosophy, sociology, so forth, human communication, and wound up getting uh, an offer uh, when I was finishing up my undergrad from the communication department, the chair, uh, who had been a professor of mine. He says, why don't you come back and get a master's degree? I said, well, I don't know, I'm thinking about X, Y, Z. He says, we'll pay for it. And I said, oh, that sounds like a good deal. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so uh, I, I did. And it was, and also along the lines there, uh, was fortunate enough to get a research grant to do a research program on uh, the alleviation of communication anxiety. So the point was, I was learning more about social sciences there on top of my chemistry degree. Uh, I had the opportunity to be introduced to the, you know, social sciences research approach, you know, through that grant and some mentoring that I got. I went over and did some studies in the psychology department uh, associated with that to make sure I understood appropriate methodology and so forth. Uh, and this was in the time frame too that oh, I was I was on a teaching assistantship and working also with the university debate squad at the time that there was uh, a, the, the national debate topic happened to be on nuclear power. Okay. I knew nothing about it, you know, really. But the, uh, uh, the utility in the state, which was Alabama Power, where Tony happened to be at one point in time, we were, I'm a little bit older than he is, but uh, anyway, they were starting a nuclear power project that started building a plant and had decided that a public education program, actually a, a broader education program on nuclear power was something they needed to do. And so one of my professors had been hired as consulting for that, and they offered me a job, and that's how I got into the nuclear power game. So, very, very interesting how that works, specifically when you're saying that it was actually part of, <laughs> it's interesting when you turned around and you said that it was part of the debate team, how it really starts. And then all of a sudden it takes a turn right. to this. This is very interesting. And I, I'm intrigued by the whole story so far. Let's, let, let's continue down the path. So all, right. uh, so all of a sudden this happens, they offer you a job. How long are we talking timeline from being part of the debate team to job offer? Well, actually I, I, was, so, uh, I was supporting coaching the debate team. Oh, okay. But uh, when I, you know, as part of as the, the graduate faculty. Okay, but uh, anyway, uh, the, 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 the timing was superb because the, the job was uh, was opening right as I was uh, finishing my graduate degree and not know, not knowing what I wanted to do. So that made good sense, and I transitioned to that. 
uh, and learned a lot. And part of the point that I want to make, one of the big opportunities there is because of the significance, financial significance and so forth of the nuclear industry and the nuclear power plant, huge investment for the time. Uh, I, as a very young person, had the opportunity to work directly with the chief executives of the company. Okay, I would just, you know, if I'd been in engineering or something, I'd have been put down in the engineering department and, you know, may have never met the CEO, but as it was, you know, we would have dinner together, you know, business occasions, you know, I was just a young fellow, but was exposed to some very, very interesting people who had excellent educations. They had a, a very interesting perspective on business because the utility business at that time was very, very much out of the mode of we are public service. You know, not that our business is to make money. Of course, every business has to make money, but we are here because we are of a public service. So there was somewhat of a noblesse oblige, you know, attitude to the senior executives. And they were typically, you know, distinguished, uh, very thoughtful uh, engineers, attorneys, most of them with multiple degrees and all that kind of stuff. So it was the ability to start interacting at the senior level very early in my career that I became accustomed to, you know, interacting at an inappropriate way with people who thought strategically. So we have nuclear power, we have, you know, strategic influence, you know, social science, uh, physical science, all that kind of stuff combined. And they trusted me enough that along came, um, uh, the TMI accident, Three Mile Island nuclear power plant accident in Pennsylvania. And so while I've been talking, you know, part of my job was to go out and work with influence leaders and educators and uh, you know, state government and things like that to give them nuclear power 101. Uh, they entrusted me to be a principal spokesperson for the company going on television uh, a lot and explaining about nuclear power and the accident. Okay, so I was doing that kind of work, and it was shortly thereafter that, that uh, in 1979, roughly in 1980s, uh, uh, in that point, that the Institute for Nuclear Power Operations was established. Now, let me ask you a question real quick, and I pardon for me interrupting you. H how far are you in the career before March 28th, 1979 occurs? So how long have you already been inside of the, of the nuke industry? Let's see. I, I joined the utility uh, in in 1982. Todd Conklin. Give or take right here. 2004, you decide to write Simple Revolutionary Acts. And we're talking June is what I can find unless you tell me otherwise. The purpose at the time, what were you thinking about, do, about doing that you decided to move forward with this? So that looks really interesting because I was working with Coca. And uh, I was working full-time at Los Alamos. And then because Los Alamos is operated by the University of California, uh, you could do this thing called a 701 form, which was a permission to do outside work. And it was a conflict of interest form, which those of people that listen to the podcast who work in any kind of government job totally know what that's about. And so I was doing this work with Coca-Cola, and we were working on reliability. We were really working on um, reliability from the safety and security side. And the, the director, his guy name was uh, his name was Bill McGrath, really good guy. Um, and he said, "You ought to write a book." And he said, "If you write a book, well, we'd be interested in, in uh, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll buy some." 
So I, I thought, well, I wonder what I should write a book about. Because at the time, I mean, this is kind of pre the New View stuff a little bit. And we're really just starting to dance around this notion of reliability um, connected with psychological safety, connected with um, the culture of the organization. So I looked at a book and thought, well, well, it strikes me that what we're really wanting to do is at the time... I was thinking revolutionize the workplace, but now if I had to do it, I'd probably say disrupt the workplace. But it, revolutionary acts is really based upon this notion of disruption, but it was kind of before the word disruption became um, a, a popular term to talk about it. And I had spent a bunch of time working with Edgar Schein on culture stuff. Cause he's kind of the dude for culture show stuff. And he sort of led me to thinking about maybe writing the book so kind of one page uh, represented a, a, a small revolutionary act you could do in the workplace that could happen at any level. It could happen at a leadership level. It could happen at the worker level. And it was relatively effective. It was kind of a fun book to write. Now, at this particular time in your life, are you already doing the stuff with DOE? Are you already working on that program or not yet? So we're not, we're not. We haven't started it yet in the DOE. It's still a little before that, but it's it's coming really soon. So it's going to be right around the corner pretty soon. But uh, at that point in time, we're we're still working with. We're just starting to figure out that culture and a more holistic view has impact on really reliable performance. So we're really, we're looking a lot at safety and a lot of security. But in the DOE. Safety and security are kind of similar. I mean, they're, they're not, but but they're sort of managed kind of the same way. It's it's a it's it's a it's been an interesting journey because initially we managed both safety and security with programs directed at the worker, and that simple revolutionary acts book is really the first time when we started looking away from the worker being the problem to maybe the worker being the solution. So do you look back now and kind of realize that this is kind of like groundwork if you were looking full scheme on really getting into human and organizational performance as you're moving yeah. forward? Yeah, totally. And it, it's funny, too, because because since you encouraged me to read that book on Audible, um, I was really surprised at how well that book held up over 15 years or 16 years, however old, it's pretty old. Um, and I really, really see this as kind of some of the initial groundwork to begin to sort of prepare the soil, to begin the organization in a conversation that's more um, holistic, more systems based in nature. And it's funny, I don't think, at least I can only speak for myself, I don't think I would have been as prepared to move in the direction I moved around the safety stuff had I not spent some time thinking about the disruptive stuff that Simple Revolutionary Acts kind of represented. Earl Carnes. On the morning of March 28th, uh, about 7 o'clock, sitting there with my coffee, looking out the window, and the phone rings. It is a reporter from a local radio station, and she says, Hey, Earl, what's to do with this accident going on up in, you know, Pennsylvania? And I didn't spit my coffee, but I might as well have it. I said, uh, can you tell me more? <laughs> and she said, yeah, let me read you the AP. So she read me the AP, and I'm going, Three Mile Island, you know. I hadn't done a lot in the industry, so I 
the blackened beach had a directory of all the plants of the United States. I'm busily trying not to sound stupid, so I'm looking up blackened beach, you know, oh, okay. And I go, well, that's a boiling water reactor. Ours is a pressurized water reactor. So that, you know, went off to, oh, well, tell me the difference. So then I had something I could talk about. <laughs> I pick up the phone. After that, I called the uh, Atomic Industrial Forum and talked to Pat Bryant, who was the uh, uh, the membership liaison. And I said, Pat, what's going on at Three Mile Island? She said, what do you mean, what's going on at Three Mile I just got a call and said, there's an accident. She said, there's an accident. You know, this was the uh, the big group that represented uh, nuclear power in the United States. Uh, I said, yeah, there's there's an accident. She said, let me call you right back. Well, it's been all these years. Pat never called me back. They uh, that's, that's the way they found out about it. So right now, when you when you get into Info, is the focus now Three Mile Island? Is that part of the reason they're bringing you in, or is this a separate separate reason starting off? No, no, no. I mean, so the the reason Info was founded, the the catalyst for Info being founded was Three Mile Island. And before before then, the utilities were geographical and corporate fiefdoms in a way, you know, by legislation and so forth. And, and you know how network everything is today. It was not that way, you know, the transmission industry and so forth. Uh, so this was, it, it was unique for the time and it's, you know, unique in the history of te- uh, the uh, nuclear technology and many technologies that the industry bound together and they said, we can't afford for this to happen again, you know, and the, the, the phrase, uh, uh uh, try, I can see the guy's name, can't call his name. Anyway, Hostages of Each Other. If you haven't read that, that's an excellent history of the nuclear power plant, uh, the nuclear industry in the United States, and the formation of ENCO. Because uh, you, uh, many people understand how uh, a lot of people have uh, industry proprietary information and their technologies and their secrets and so forth, so to speak, that uh, that are you know unique to them and but the industry said, okay, you know, we may have certain proprietary interests, but we have got to band together and establish common standards that go beyond the regulations and and make sure that we as an industry uh, drive the performance of the entire industry so that there are no uh, poor performers and that we're constantly improving and striving every day to improve what we're doing, and that was the basic uh, mission of uh, uh, instituting nuclear uh, power operations, which was excellence. And when you go into the info headquarters, you know, in the nice big uh, atrium area out there, there's standing right there, very visible to everyone, uh, is a marble pillar, uh, and carved into the surface uh, on the top of the marble pillar is the word excellence, except with the final letters are not finished. So that was the idea. It's the pursuit of excellence because you never achieve it. So uh, so that was my introduction to, to Info. And I'll finish that off. I'll give you a couple of things. The first things that they were doing, you know, were working with the industry on obvious things, uh, being response to the recommendations that came out of the various investigations uh, on the TMI accident, and some of them had to do with hardware, a lot of it had to do with training, some of it had to do with procedures and things like that. So the industry was still you know, in the process of responding to those basic recommendations as INPO was getting started. So 
uh, a lot of people they drew on from the uh, uh, from the nuclear navy because there was not a huge body of expertise within the commercial nuclear power industry such that utilities were willing to let a lot of their good people go you know and go to work in this they had to have them there working in their plants and so was the idea so Dennis then started hiring people good people from the nuclear navy uh, and that, that was all an interesting story too but uh, I, I'll shift to this so I had great fortune uh, then not immediately but later to be recruited to work with my dear friend and mentor Jim Forsyth. Now Jim crewed with Dennis on the maiden voyage of the Nautilus. Okay, and he was an, he was a Navy captain. Uh, he was a good farm boy from from uh, uh, Wisconsin, and uh, uh, so he was a plank over. He was one of the originals and was the first team leader that Dennis hired uh, to start leading these teams going out doing the evaluation of plants. And he had done with the Navy or Sport, which is the big evaluation group for Rickover that went all over the place evaluating nuclear subs. So he had a tremendous wealth of expertise there. And he and Dennis were incredible leaders. I mean, you know, if you're even a young guy like me who was not Navy and knew nothing, uh, Dennis would stop by if I was, I usually, you know, would work beyond normal closing time when I was there doing something just quiet and so Dennis got look up Dennis come and say hey what you doing Earl and uh, he'd sit down and he'd talk but it wasn't just me he would do that for everybody okay so he, he had that he didn't have this command style everybody loved him said do whatever Dennis wanted but he had a way of working with people same thing with Jim you know, his people just loved it. And these were very interesting, educated people, too. Jim was a, a certified gem cutter in the United States and the UK, did beautiful gemstones, taught me that art. Uh, he was a student of American history, in particular, uh, of Western literature. And when he retired, he started a, an antique bookstore down in Florida. So <laughs> these are interesting people. So the, the point being there, uh, to all this is it was a way of thinking again i had the great pleasure of being able to work for gentlemen like this observing them you know it was not telling me what to do but me studying that and i remember saying so much to jim and jim uh, director jim and jim went to hire me i said well jim i'm very flattered but i said i'm not an engineer he said earl i can hire engineers he said i can hire engineers i need somebody who can help me think about organizations basically people and so from my prior experiences, the way I went through the, all this kind of stuff, Jay, was that I've been fortunate enough to have these multiplicity of experiences and educational background and and working in the education arena and, and being comfortable interacting with senior executives and things like that, that I guess maybe I had a, a skill set. Well, I know I had a skill set that uh, uh, and research, I should say, too. I had a skill set that the engineers, we had the really, really very fine engineers, a lot of them out of the Navy, some utility, but they didn't have. And so they... So, so they're pretty much looking at you right there at that particular standpoint as the translator. Exactly. You're being able to to, to take the, the lingo from the engineers and go to, we'll call it the, the suite level, the upper management, and have these discussions where they might not be able to have the... And have the same linguistics that you do. That, that, that's correct. And there was another. There was another part of it, and this is very important for people to know. Uh, I, I believe, or at least it's, it's the stories I tell myself, uh, and that is that I knew 
that I didn't know anything about the nuclear technology like these people did. So, you see, every time that we go out on an evaluation, every team leader, these are high-powered people, uh, would do an evaluation of all team members. Well, I never paid any real attention to this, because as long as Jim was happy, I was happy, you know. So one day this guy uh, walks in the office, and he was really ticked off, and he was grousing about his evaluation. He didn't get the evaluation he thought he ought to have. And he said, well, what, what did you get? And I didn't know that there's an envelope, you know, that's that stuck in my inbox. So, so I opened it up and I, I had a very good evaluation. He was really picked up. He said, look, I've been an engineer. I've been in this plant. I've been in that plant. All this kind of stuff. You don't have that experience. How come you get rated better than I do? So I, I had never had thought about it before. Okay. And it came to me that I was comfortable with being ignorant. You know, <laughs> I guess that's one way to, to look at it differently. <laughs> but I didn't, it wasn't important for me to think that I knew more than the people that I was evaluating. As a, as a matter of fact, I went in presupposing that they knew more than I did, and I was genuinely interested. Tune in next week as we continue the story of human and organizational performance, how it started here on Safety FM. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.